It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 136. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. So one of the things that we both just did, we use Zoom for this, and uh, we both hit the record button. And it's uh, so it's basically, you know, I'm grabbing a recording and Gary's grabbing a recording in case something goes wrong. Um, I was listening to a podcast earlier today from someone I follow who uh, apparently they were on their third take of the podcast uh, because they forgot to push record. <laughs> Whoopsie. Yeah. So, and um, if anybody's been using Zoom, you'll notice that it's become a little bit more in your face about letting everybody know that the recording is happening, which I find interesting. Um, I was theorizing that perhaps there were some surreptitious recordings happening um, that, uh, you know, people didn't realize that their meeting was being recorded by by them, by someone else on the meeting. So interesting stuff. All uh, about, sometimes, hmm? yeah, sometimes I have, you know, since I've done 2000 some videos, right. I've never not been recording, but I <laughs> sometimes have had not had my mic either on or selected or something has happened where the audio is being captured. Right. And, and then I'll record an entire video, find out it's great. It's perfect, but there's no audio. So I have to start over again. I have to say every single time that's happened, the video on the second time I've done it has been better because I've rehearsed. (laughs) (laughs) So you think like, Oh, you know, a way to make my, my show better. Would be to always do that, but always you know, forget to record. Yes. Yeah. Always, or yeah, <laughs> always just do it twice. But unfortunately, you know, the, doing it twice does take twice as long. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've done the mic thing. And in this case, it's because Windows is really, really bad about um, uh, basically letting you see what mic you're using. Um, and it's mm-hmm. very easy for uh, the mic to be the wrong one when you fire up an app apps you know they all have their own individual controls to let you select the uh, yeah. the microphone and the speaker that you're using irrespective of the system setting but apparently it's also very easy for that to accidentally get reset and as i'm sure you have with your hardware i mean on my case i've got like four or five different output devices three or four different input devices and it's a you know definitely have to make sure that you're collecting or connecting the right one for the right job so anyway, the, the, the whole recording thing of, um, um, made me think of, you know, this concept of, of surreptitiously recording, uh, meetings dovetails nicely into the topic of privacy, which dovetails nicely into Apple had some announcements yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. The, um, you say privacy, um, uh, just I, I did see a couple comments on some of my videos uh, about people complaining about privacy um, and some of the new features that Apple announced. Because when you think about it quickly, something called privacy monitoring sounds like it would be bad. You know, like I want my privacy. I don't want my privacy monitored. <laughs> so I, I had two different comments from different people that were just basically saying that you know things this was bad privacy is important to me and privacy monitoring is bad. It's like, no, 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 that's not, (laughs) that's not how it works. Privacy monitoring is good. That's for you to know who is violating your privacy. I, I, yeah. So hmm, there's that, but yeah, Apple had a, had their big developer announcement uh, yesterday and they returned to 
an earlier time of developer announcements where actually all of the announcements were very software oriented. There was new, no new hardware introduced. That's what I heard, that there was yep. nothing hardware related at all. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Worldwide Developers Conference a long time ago used to always be that way with occasionally breaking out of that and having some hardware. Sometimes Apple would justify that saying, oh, we're introducing new pro machines, right? These are for developers, you know, and sometimes they haven't been, they've been like, and he, and here's a new iPad mini or something. It's like, that's not for developers, but, but the, um, it got to the point where there have been hardware announcements at the worldwide developer conference for long enough that people kind of expected it this time. And Apple simply turned around and said, nope, this is all software. So the interesting thing was, is they talked for an hour and 45 minutes with no so- no hardware announcements. So there was no, here's our new thing. Everybody watched the commercial we made in the video and see how pretty it is. It was just an hour and 45 minutes of feature after feature after feature of software. Huge, long list. I've, I mean, I halfway through it, my notes were just pages and pages, usually I mean, you know, I'm trying to like, how do I summarize this? Just, you know, lists of things. I, afterwards I went and I said, well, let me do a summary video. That's just the Mac stuff. So just um, the new Mac OS Monterey, that's what it's called. And, you know, I got to 106 things in the list and I started at some point started skipping things because I was like, eh, that's really tiny. So it's actually bigger than that. And that doesn't include all the things that people usually start to discover once the betas are, you know, people sorting through the betas, like, Oh, there's a new system preference for this, or there's a new thing. If you click on this, it does something else. Those things pop up all the time. None of those really are on my list. It's all just stuff that somewhere Apple has mentioned. So it's a super long list of things, nothing monumental to everyone. Like in the past, there's been things that have been like this, uh, everybody's affected by this. There are big things that affect certain people. Like for instance, take universal control. If you sit with a iMac or some desktop Mac and a laptop next to it all the time, universal control is going to be something you're going to use all the time. It allows you to have basically your one one keyboard and mouse for say your big desktop machine. And if you move the mouse over enough, it just goes over to your laptop that happens to be sitting there. Right. And then the keyboard controls that. That's handy for people who have that exact, you know, kind of setup. But if you don't, you'll you'll forget that it's even there because it's just not useful to you. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that could be big to some people, but nothing that's going to be big to everybody. Um, it's interesting because um, that actually is a feature that I have tried unsuccessfully to get working here in Windows, but it's been in Windows 10. And I, I, it reminds me that one of the comments that I heard from, I forget who, um, just obviously in the last 24 hours, was that a lot of the, the features that Apple was introducing across the board, many of them were... I guess I'd call it catch-up features, features Mm. that are already present on other operating systems or on other platforms like Android or Windows. Yeah. Well, Apple does, Apple does, you know, a fair share of both. And I think Windows does too. I mean, Mm -hmm. all all the operating systems, because the innovation comes from all over the industry, right? A, A new feature pops up in Android, another pops up in iOS, another in, you know, Windows, another in Mac, you know, and all this. And then the other, if it's good, if it kind of, you know, if the natural selection process makes it so that that becomes an important feature for that, you know, the people who use that platform, right. then it eventually makes it to all the rest. Um, and if it doesn't, 
then it never goes beyond that one platform. And sometimes it's removed from that platform. So, and I'm sure there's a wide variety of this stuff in all of these features. Um, it's, uh, I do have the developer beta, so I have played around with this. Some of the stuff works now and some looks like it may not be ready yet. You know, maybe by the public beta in July, it would be ready. I was um, going to ask what the release fr- time frame was. Cause yeah, so it's often- now for, yeah, it's beta one is developer beta. Uh-huh. They say July for a public beta. Um, and then, you know, fall for the final thing. So, you know, if it fits last year, it'd be like the end of October or something like that. Interesting. Um, all the features seem, I mean, how most of the features seem to be there. Like there's a, a new feature with the notes app called quick notes and it works enough that it's there, but I think it's probably going to work better when they're done with it. Um, one of the things about quick note is that it's kind of context-based. So if you start a quick note and you happen to be looking at a web page. That quick notes associated with that web page. So then you go away, but you go back to that web page later, and there's a little indicator. There's a quick note that's associated with this page. You could bring it back up. Got so it. if you're doing research, you can, you know, basically have these notes that are associated with it. It's it's interesting. A lot of web companies have tried creating bl- browsers and browser plugins that do this right? Um, and that have notes directly like in the browser. And there's been a lot of pushback about, you know, changing the browser, the, you know, the codes on the browser page, privacy, you know, they're seeing what pages you're looking at, that kind of thing. And this idea of keeping the notes separate, they're in the notes app, but having them kind of associated with the fact that they're at a, you're at a page when you're writing them is kind of a neat compromise. And I, uh, do you I think remember- it might be a winner. Do you remember uh, Google Null? Yeah, definitely. This kind of feels like that, only private, right? Null was the same kind of a thing where you could write up notes on specific web pages and you could go deep and, you know, as much as you wanted. um, And they could be made publicly available in that same kind of associated with this page way. Yeah, this is yeah, definitely a private kind of thing. Null didn't make it, of course. No. <laughs> no. Well, and this is also, it. you know, another thing about this is it's, you know, and this is true for like tech startups and all. This is a small feature inside of a small app. Oh, I understand. Yes. So, yeah. so when you go and you say, oh, here's a way to take notes about web pages, but it's a small feature in a small app, its chances of survival are much greater than when you have, here's an entire product, yes. you know, that's based on this. So, um, so hopefully, you know, that that's kind of neat. I've played around with that. Um, another neat thing is in the Photos app, uh, it recognizes text. So signs and things that are in photos, mm-hmm. um, you could just select them like they're text. Cool. And uh, copy and paste and all of that. Um, a big feature, maybe the only thing that I would classify as big is the introduction of an app called Shortcuts to Mac OS. So Shortcuts is an automation app that's been on iOS for the iPhone and iPad for a while and allows you to create little automated things, you know, go and do that, you know, do these five things. When I press this button, uh, you have little loops and conditional statements and all of that in there. And the Macs always had automator, which is much more advanced than shortcuts. Now they've brought the shortcuts app over to the Mac, but in doing so they've made it a lot more powerful because um, they've given it some of the, you know, the things that Mac can do are now in shortcuts. So there's a big, you know, Venn diagram overlap with shortcuts and automator now. And they've actually added in there, although it's not working in the developer beta one, the ability to add AppleScript, JavaScript, and shell scripts. 
Interesting. Which, of course, those adding the, even one of those three things, but you know, just shell scripts by itself, just creates so much more power inside the uh, short, you know, shortcuts app. Maybe not for everybody. Maybe if you want to create a quick shortcut, dragging, dropping some stuff, you don't have that power. But for someone like me to go and create a shell script, <laughs> you know, inside and then have that activated alongside other shortcuts, it's going to be really interesting to see um, to see how that works and if um, if both Automator and Shortcuts uh, continue to coexist side by side, or maybe Shortcuts is the future. A lot of people predict it's the future. Apple has a mixed history because sometimes Apple will do something like, you know, leave Automator there for decades, you know, as supported, but maybe not getting that much love, right. which technically really hasn't got much love over the course of its history. Um, and then other times Apple kills something off really quickly when there's something like this. So I, I tend to think Automator will be there for a, a, a long time, but most people will just use shortcuts instead. So I'm excited about that because in particular, it gives me a lot of videos to make. All this stuff I'm talking about, it's like a lot of videos I can make. Shortcuts uh, itself, I could probably do a video on shortcuts every you know one day a week for the entire year. You know, So that's kind of nice for me. Um, there's uh, let's see what else is there. Well, they've expanded like the password ability, uh, so you can get to your passwords a little easier. Um, there's some nice multi multi user kind of stuff. Uh, they've done a lot of improvements to apps, like new features in Maps, new features in FaceTime. You can now use FaceTime to sync, um, like watch videos and uh, audio and screen sharing in sync. So you could pick a show on Apple TV. Mm -hmm. um, in the, that's the app Apple TV, not the service. So right. I assume it would include things like HBO and all that are part of that. And then if you have that same service, we're both on FaceTime, we could both watch the show in sync um, over FaceTime. So FaceTime handles doing a little bit of a pause over here to get everything in sync. Yeah, I assume. Cool. And then, and then we can talk, uh, and you know, uh, see each other as we're watching the show together. And the same thing with music, we could listen to music together and I could do screen sharing, which was always kind of weird because you could have done, you could always do screen sharing in the messages app. So you could, so if you were talking to somebody in FaceTime and you wanted to like show them how to do something on their Mac, <laughs> you had to basically leave FaceTime, go to text messaging, and then you could screen share. <laughs> but now you could do that in FaceTime too. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and then Safari's got a new look um, to how, you know, they, they kind of redesigned how the top of the browser looks. Instead of having an address bar at the top where you could search or type a URL and then tabs below that, each tab now has its own address field. So, if, you know, when you think about it, it makes sense because yeah. say you're at, you're at, uh, you know, askleo.com, it says at the top, askleo.com. And then the tab says, ask Leo, you know, ask Leo or askleo.com. And you're like, well, it's saying that in both places. So just having it in the tab kind of makes sense. Um, and then this thing called tab groups, which solves the problem of the people that have 50 tabs open. The idea is you have, say, five tabs open because you're doing a particular task, and you say, save that those five tabs into a group. Now, start a new tab group and open another five tabs. If I want to switch groups, I can do it, and it's instant. Right. So it's like you have 10 tabs open, but you're only seeing five at a time. You switch between a, the groups. I'm assuming that from a system resources point of view, which is the real problem yeah. with multiple tabs, you still have 10 tabs open. <laughs> well, I don't know about that because when you think about it, when Do you're looking at 10 them? tabs, 
that, yeah, they're kind of suspended. And also when you're looking, when you have 10 tabs, you're only looking at one page, the other nine, you're not seeing, you have to switch to that tab. So with the groups, say if you have five and then you're looking at the first tab, but you switch to another group, it knows, oh, okay. The first thing that's going to happen when they switch back to these tabs is the first tab is going to be shown. Mm -hmm. So the other four, I don't need to be so concerned about because it's going to take two steps to get back to those. Right. So in my test, if I created a bunch of tab groups, I could switch between them instantly. So I think that's what it's doing. It's saying, I'll kind of suspend the one, you know, the one that's the frontmost tab and very much suspend the ones that are not the frontmost tab for each group. Degrees of suspension. I like Yeah. That. But it does, it does work and it creates a fluid kind of like getting around kind of right. environment. Plus the fact is that, you know, these tab groups, you can keep them around. They're, they're, you know, they're persistent. So you create a tab group of like the new sites you want to go to. And I don't have to worry about oh, if I close one accidentally or where are they in my huge list of tabs? I just go to that tab group and they're there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's lots of other features and, you know, I don't want to take the whole show up about them, but um, they did bring up another thing that I think uh, we could both uh, talk about is sure. um, I got, I saw a few comments at different sites with people saying, um, why does Apple come out with new versions of Mac OS when they haven't fixed the bugs in the old version? Yeah, I hear, that's that's one I hear all, all the time as well. Mm -hmm. Is you know why did they re, why is there another rev of Windows with all these features that I will never use, mm -hmm. but I'm still bounding my head against this one bug. You know that yeah. kind of things. So. Well, they never use thing. That's all other. You know, then I get uh, messages from people saying, "How do I do this on my Mac?" Well, you use this feature. Oh, I don't have that. I'm on an old version of the OS. Oh, because you probably said I'll never use those new features and you stayed on an old version. <laughs> and now it turns out you can use those. But yeah, the um, you you get this a lot, and it's for software too. You know, new version Absolutely, of Photoshop yeah, or yeah. something comes out. It comes out, and it, and it does lead to the bigger question: is why are there bugs in software? I mean, Apple must have one of the largest software development teams working on. Mac OS, iOS, iPad OS, all of those. Well, you know, anybody who knows anything about writing software basically would say, well, you just answered your own question. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> right? it's, it's a large, I, large group of people. But you think with the resources, the, the amount of testing and, and all of that, the skill level of the people that they're able to hire, the same thing for Microsoft and mm -hmm. Google and Facebook and all that. Yet there are bugs in all of the software developed by all of those companies. And uh, fortunately, you know, we're, we're qualified to talk about this because we're both software developers right? right. and yeah. we know what it's like to develop software. And well, the truth is there's just no such thing as bug-free software. It's funny. I've had people push back on that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I just say, you know, no, no, there's always a bug. There's at least one. And as soon as you find that one, there's at least another one. Um, it yep. may not, it may not be important, right? But mm -hmm. there is a mistake in there somewhere. There is un unexpected behavior somewhere. Right. And, and it's this a, definition yeah. of importance, I think, that really starts to um, to drive the bus here when we talk about why is there still why are there still bugs in software? Because well, not yeah. everybody not everybody thinks that what you think is a mission critical show stopping bug matters at all, <laughs> right? Right, because everybody uses their computers differently yep. in different ways for different things and in different situations. And it's the huge variety that makes it so hard to develop operating systems because, you know, 
Apple's got it a little easy with the hardware because they have all control over the hardware. So they could say that right now there are 89 different computers that can use Mac OS, you know, going back over the years and the different models and all of that. Even those, though, they're different memory amounts, different storage amounts, things right. like that. Right. So there, there are hundreds of probably different configurations capable of, say, running Mac OS uh, Big Sur. You know, it's worse than that, actually, because... Um, I mean, obviously, you know, Microsoft has a, a much huger problem because they don't yeah. control the hardware and the, the combinatorics of hardware alone are just not fathomable. I mean, it's just yeah, it's yeah. incredibly different. But even when you do have control over the hardware, there's more to it than just, you know, what software happens to be installed on this user's machine. It's also, or how much RAM they have or how big their yeah. disks are, or any of those kinds of things. It's also things like, well, what language are they using? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good right? point. Which, which factors into all these. What are the settings yeah. that they happen to have? Oh, I mean, yeah. the, even even as, as, as um, homogenous a platform as um, Macs are, the number of variations is incalculable. It just is. And yep. that's one of the things that leads to, well, you just can't test every possible combination. Right. And even after you have the machine itself with every setting and every configuration all set up, then you have, how are you actually using it? Right. Like, you, you know, the 50 browser tabs thing, right? Are you, do you have, there's somebody that has 50 browser tabs open right now. And there's somebody that never uses more than one. Right. right. And there's somebody that has no extensions in their browser and somebody that has a bunch of them just loves installing extensions. There's somebody that's using this browser in a window or full screen. And they also have these apps open at the same time or these extensions installed or they navigate using their keyboard completely. Right. Just switching between apps, arrow keys, moving around with keyboard commands. Another person is barely touching their keyboard using their their pointer you know, their mouse or their trackpad all the time for things. It just, it just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And it, you get to the point where when there is a bug and if you discover it or, you know, not that you discover it, like you're the only person in the world to see it, but you discover it, it's like you find this bug there and it's affecting you. Uh, it's a lot of times the combination of all the different things that you're using and you're going to stick with that combination, right? You're do you have the same Mac with all that same stuff. You're using the same software in the same way and the same habits. So if you run into something that doesn't work, you're going to run into it again and again and again. And then you're going to say, why can't Apple or Microsoft or whatever fix this and assume that everybody is seeing this? That was, all the time. I was what I was going to say next. The phrase that I that I I have a visceral reaction to these days is everybody's seeing this. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's just not the case. Yeah. You have to consider that it's not, I, I mean, even from the simple point of like some of my game apps that I've developed, uh, it just uh, amazes me sometimes the, the ways people have, you know, somebody comes to a situation and it, my game is not working for them at all. Right. It's like crashing all the time or doing this thing wrong all the time. And it takes a lot of back and forth to determine they're doing something with my game, playing in some way that I never in a million years, even as the person that put the game together line by line of code and every piece of artwork, I never thought that that's how somebody would play the game. And it just, it only comes up once. And, and that person thinks that everybody's experiencing, like with my current uh, version of my Mahjong game. Uh, it never occurred to me that uh, people would, um, you know, you have to pick two tiles 
And and all the it's literally 20 years I've been developing versions of this game. And I only recently, with the most recent version, discovered that some people like to tap on the iPad one tile with one finger and keep their finger on that tile and then tap the second tile with the second finger while still holding the first finger down. And makes sense. I could see why a small percentage of people would just do that. But I never, never, ever thought that that was a possibility. And maybe because the first, you know, 10 years of developing it, it was a computer game. So it was, you know, you had a pointer and a, you know, click on the mouse. But once I, once I discovered that, that that's what somebody was doing, the bug that they kept saying would happen all the time for them. And I could never reproduce. I could then reproduce every single time by doing exactly what they did and fix it. But it's just this sort of thing happens for Mac OS and windows all the time. And even, even though they have a lot of testers, the testers, no matter how wide a net you cast for testers, there's still some similarities between them. Um, It's just, you know, first you test in house. So you have a bunch of people that are, Apple employees testing something, right? Right. And they're different than non-Apple employees in a lot of significant ways. But then even when you put it out to developers, for years, Apple only had developer betas. So the only people that test the Mac, new Mac OS were developers. The first time regular non-developers got to see Mac OS is for the initial release, which a ton of bugs would show up because developers are different <laughs> than normal aren't users. We, aren't we though? <laughs> yes. So you had it. And, and actually the wisdom that came out of those years sticks with people today where they avoid the first version of a new release of Mac OS completely. And, and I remember back in those days telling people, yeah, you should, it's never been tested by real people. It's only right. by tested by Apple employees, developers, and targeted like testers that the company has hired. Um, but and Apple, Apple realized this, and they started their public beta test program, which lasts for four to five months now, which means that basically what used to be the initial version of Mac OS uh, is now actually version four or five. Right, that comes out. Right, um, you know, which is smart of Apple to do that, and most other software companies now understand the importance of public beta testing. It's interesting because with Windows 10 specifically, I don't know if it predates Windows 10, but Microsoft has what they call their Insiders Program, yep. and it's essentially that ongoing public beta. Mm-hmm. Anybody can join if they want to. Um, there's no real perk for joining it. Um, other than, I don't know, you get early access, obviously, to all the new features, but the operating system may be unstable and there's no guarantees. The usual stuff that you might get with a beta test. Yeah. Um, and they have taken so much flack for that because one of the things that they're doing is, in some ways, it appears that they're using that in lieu of their own dedicated testing organization. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know that uh, they, for all of their products, they have some amount of automated testing. In other words, you finish your program, you finish your operating system, you finish whatever it is you've written, and then you run a program that exercises the heck out of it, runs test cases on it, it, it generates documents, it runs programs, it does this, it does that um, in an automated fashion. And quite often, a lot of the bugs that get reported to Microsoft end up uh, generating a test case that that gets then gets added to these automated suites of tests, which is kind of cool just to make sure that the bug doesn't regress sometime in the future. Yeah. But 
Um, there are obvious limitations like with those kind of scenarios. It certainly does not um, mimic how real people use the machine. Uh, it, it, you can build in times and some randomization, but the fact is a test program running at full speed because we need to get the program out is not the same as somebody poking at their keyboard. And when you talk about an insider program, the people who are incentivized, who feel incentivized to actually join and participate in that program, again, they're different than real users. They're not necessarily developers in, in, the, in the scenario that you were describing with Mac, using, you know, doing uh -huh. a release to developers. But they are still, I'll just say, leading edge, almost by definition, leading edge users who are simultaneously a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more understanding, but also a little bit unique in how they use things that is different from the real world. And Microsoft, where Microsoft really gets its criticism is they basically have been using their release process, not the insider preview, but the release process as their quote unquote beta test. Uh, at least that's the way some people characterize it. Uh, and in some ways, yeah, that's, kind of sort of true because there's nothing absolutely nothing like hitting the real world for something to uh, to show its true colors in terms of stability and bugs exactly and um yeah and people you know I, I don't know they they often think that the companies can somehow magically release software that doesn't have bugs in it and it's just not the case although there are two different types of releases that uh all companies do. One is the kind of, um, you know, we're going to possibly break things, which is like a new version of the operating system or, you know, usually that first number in the versioning of software is changed, right? You go right. from version seven to version eight or whatever. Then you have the, we're going to be very careful about breaking things when you go to that second number, <laughs> 8.1 to 8.2. And it, it's, you, you run into some other friction there because often you get uh, people saying, well, there's a problem or a feature I want added in the software. Why can't Apple or Microsoft just add this thing in there? Right. And every time you change software, whether it's fixing a bug or adding a feature, you run the chance of introducing other bugs. <laughs> so you can easily fix a bug, some bug that everybody's saying, this is a problem. You need to fix this. And um, can't you just fix this one thing? It's like, well, maybe they can sometimes. Other times they start to look at it and say, ooh, you know, the bug is in a system that actually goes across different, it affects whole sorts of different parts of the operating system. If we fix this here, we could introduce problems everywhere else. Right. This is actually something that's going to take a lot of time and resources. Let's save it for the next major update. Or, you know, perhaps it's going to take us a few months. It's not as simple as people think. Um, and, you, you know, it can, it can be even something that is so, you think so simple as the user. You think it's like, I press this button, it does this, it should do that. Why can't they just fix it? But if that bug is hidden in a layer that's further down, then no, you can't just fix it. You've got to wait for the next major release because... Uh, and there could be problems. It's going to take a lot of resources to confirm that there aren't problems. It's even more complicated than that um, because what a lot of people consider to be bugs are not bugs at all. They are, I'll just call them design decisions that people just yeah. don't happen to agree with. 
Well, your disagreement is not indication that it's a bug. It may very well be behaving exactly as it was designed. Uh, you just may not be the target audience for it. I don't know how much Apple has this, but Microsoft definitely does. I've often considered consumer level windows not to be the customer. Um, it's, you know, the, the average consumer who uses Windows is actually not the target customer for Windows. It's the enterprise, it's businesses, it's, it's places that buy thousands upon thousands of Windows licenses at a time um, that allows Microsoft to go out and give all the consumers a free copy, for sure, if they want it. But, um, but that does mean that the decision of whether to change something, whether it be a fix or a change, um, is way more complicated than just saying, well, you know, all these people here don't like it. Well, no, the businesses that are actually footing the bill, they want it this way. They need it this way. The other one that that I think a lot of people don't understand, and Microsoft has actually backed off from this very slowly over the years, but in years past, I mean, literally, when I started at Microsoft in 1983, uh, one of my jobs at that time was to reintroduce bugs. And it was very intentional because the fix for a bug, and it was clearly a bug, the, the software was not supposed to operate this way. But because it had been operating that way for so long, that's how it was being used. And by fixing the bug, you now broke all of these places it was being used. That was seen as being more costly than mm. actually fixing the bug. So yeah, many of the many of the times that I I back when patching was literally patching a file, uh, one of the things that I was known to you know have to go in to do is say, okay, we'll just need to reintroduce that bug so it behaves the way that it used to, so that all these <laughs> other things that depended on that buggy behavior will continue to work. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, we've got a uh, you know. Uh, I don't know. Software's had an interesting history with all these uh, bugs and people complaining about bugs or misunderstanding how software is kind of developed and um, and how betas work too. You know, um, because right. no doubt there'll be people that well, there are always people that upgrade to the Apple betas and then immediately, <laughs> you know, beg for help. How do I get back to the normal version? Right. Um, and um, Basically, yeah. If you don't, if you don't know how to do that, you shouldn't be shouldn't be doing it uh, in the first place. Shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't be doing that. That should be the first question you ask when you say, hmm, "I'd like to try out this new version of you know Mac OS. Um, do you have a route back?" I, even I, who certainly know how to get back if I need to, um, I have a system to, to make sure I don't need to. Uh, sure. Like for instance, for this uh, version of the the new developer version of Mac OS, I I'm certainly not going to do my desktop Mac which is what I do all my work on, right? right. That's the, the current stable version of macOS. I have a laptop that travels around with me. And even that, I don't want to take that off of the current stable version of macOS, but I do have an external SSD. <laughs> and I what I do is I can boot from that external SSD mm -hmm. and I've installed the beta on that. So I basically have a machine that can boot either normally or use the external SSD and I could check out the developer beta. Um, I imagine this is how a lot of developers work, uh, especially in the early days here. You know, you test out your software using another drive that boots into the, the beta, but you don't take your entire machine there. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, if someone like me who certainly knows how to get back from 
going to the beta doesn't dare go to the beta on the machines I actually do work on. They, the people that are going to the betas, you know, without knowing how to get back, certainly should not. It's interesting though, because, and, and what you're doing is absolutely valid, right? That is yeah. the way to protect yourself. At the big, um, at the big, I want to make a point at the early stages here, I changed my strategy later on. So that actually is part of what, where I was headed, because one of the problems with that strategy, again, not from your position, but from the company's position is that what they really want is real world use. Yep. Mm -hmm. They want your experience of using it as your primary operating system for your day-to-day -day work. And when you're just installing it on an SSD and booting from that, or as I would here, setting up a virtual machine and just sort of poking at the virtual machine, knowing that you know there's no harm, no foul if that thing dies completely. That's, that's different, right? I'm not doing all the things that they're really, really right. interested in. What it reminds me of, again, going back to the days at Microsoft, I hope they're still doing this, but one of the phrases that you often hear um, is something called dog food. It comes from the fray, from the full phrase, eating your own dog food, which means if you're working on Windows, you run the current version of Windows, the development version of Windows. If you're working on Office, you run the version you're working on. If you're working mm -hmm. on, on like the mail program, Outlook or something like that, you run personally the version of Outlook that you're working on. You, you are actually running the software that um, uh, you're expecting other people to be willing to run. And if you're not willing to run it after you've added your feature or checked in your code or accepted whatever other changes people have been making to the source tree, that tells you something. If you don't believe in the product enough to run it yourself, then you need to rethink what you're doing to the product. That's kind of the mentality behind it. And yes, there have been some costly failures as a result, right? Because one bad bug in the wrong corner of a commonly used piece of software, like say Windows, could bring an entire division to its knees while they were figuring out how to fix it, how to uh, distribute that fix to all these people whose machines weren't working. But yes, um, I'm hoping they're still doing something along those lines because I do think uh, it is not only one of the best ways to get feedback on exactly how the thing is or is not working, but it also makes you think twice about adding that feature or making that change. Yep. Uh, you know, if your if your change is going to bring your division to a halt if it fails, you think twice before you put it in. <laughs> yeah, good point. I'm sure Apple operates you know internally that way. And then if, I I do like the idea that you know of separating developer betas and public betas with the idea being that developers are people that make the apps. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the developer beta here is, say I make an app for the Mac, I want to make sure that on the day that this new operating system launches, my app is compatible and there are no bugs and it works perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And I always you know, tell people, you know, take note of the fact this beta came out, uh, let's see, June 7th. June 7th was the first developer beta. And so if you have a piece of software that you pay for, you know, that's from a, you know, fairly decent sized company that you expect good support from June 7th was the first day that they could actually have a Mac running their software on Mac OS Monterey. So if October, whatever Mac OS Monterey comes out and they say, oh, our software is not yet compatible with Mac OS Monterey. Right. They had a lot of time. They had I mean, a lot of time. Yep. You know, it's sure that it's going to change, but the but if there was anything major, 
June 7th was the day that they could have started dealing with it. And probably sometime in July and August is an even more stable version. At some point, Apple tells developers, we're not, you know, it's pretty stable. We're just squashing bugs from now on. So don't expect any changes. So get your apps working. There are always the the developers that are ready day one, you know, good for them. And then there are always the developers that are still like months and months after the new operating system comes out saying, oh, we, we're sorry, we, we don't have it compatible yet. And that really that really upsets me, especially it, it always seems to be stuff people pay a lot for. I was going like to say, for, it, I mean, there's a there's a topic that, that's on our list. It'll come up probably in a future uh, yeah. a future episode. But um, I mean, there are there are software developers out there who develop really cool, really important software that don't have the resources to jump on every operating system release. Yep. They get a pass, right? They, I understand yeah. that they're doing what they're doing, but it's the big companies, the p- companies, as you say, for which we're paying lots of money, or, or as the case may be, seeing lots of ads, or however it is we're paying for that software, that they're not doing the due diligence to get themselves ready. Uh, when they have such a long lead time, I agree. That's really, really frustrating. I always feel really bad for the the people using their computers with some of this because sometimes it's very specialized. That's one of the reasons it's expensive. It's very specialized. Like for some reason, the example of DJing software comes to right, mind. Right. Uh, there's all sorts of you know software that DJs use on Macs and people that do other audio tasks as well, audio mixing and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about, of course, Apple's got its own logic stuff, but people using other things. That always seems to lag behind a lot. And that stuff is very often expensive. So people aren't willing, you know, they've learned this. It works on whatever old Mac they've got. It doesn't work on new Macs because it's years behind in supporting operating systems. And that always makes me very angry that somebody's using an old operating system on an old Mac simply because the main thing they need to do is use a piece of software where the developer has basically let support for it go. That happens. In fact, that happens a lot on the Windows side because there, I do hear frequently from individuals who um, have some piece of software that they rely on. Uh, not DJing usually. It's more like the, the one that comes to mind are things like accounting packages and, and um, uh, CAD CAM design software that um, the, the last version supported Windows XP, which was 20 years ago. And these are people that have now built their business around using this particular piece of software. And they are locked into not just that software, but Windows XP as a result. Um, yeah. It's 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 tough because companies do come and go. Um, the larger companies have, I think, a larger responsibility for maintaining some expectation of future compatibility. But especially when you're hanging your hat on an individual developer or a uh, um, an open source project or or somebody that you know just happens to get bought up and goes away, um, yeah, life can get really really tough. Yep. So cool. Yeah, that's it's interesting. So yes, all software has bugs, no exceptions. Um, as it turns out, uh, it's funny that we t- went into this topic today. Um, I do actually have an article I wrote several months ago uh, called Why Didn't Microsoft Fix the Bug I Care About? That actually talks about some of the exact same things we've been talking about here. Mm. Uh, includes a couple of specific examples because it was actually spurred by a question that I got. Somebody complaining about um, a bug in Windows File Explorer uh, that has been there since uh, Windows XP. And they were um, you know, complaining about it not still, still not having been fixed in Windows 10. And it's not even an obvious answer, whether it is or is not a bug. But I did postulate a number of different reasons as to um, why. It just might not be something 
that would ever get fixed. Well, yeah, and we don't even talk about that. But sometimes things aren't bugs. Like there's just, you know, your expected behavior is different than somebody else's expected behavior. You know, somebody else wants when you close a document and open it again for it to basically return to the default window size. And somebody right. else wants it to re- remember the size that you last had the window at. Right. Which one's right? I mean, you may think I am absolutely right. The what what I want to happen <laughs> is the way it should work. But and another then, person may think, no, 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 no. It's the other way. And then when you explain that, what's the immediate reaction? Add a checkbox. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Add another <laughs> in a long list of preference. I uh, is isn't it? Uh, well, somebody once said, and maybe it's somebody we mutually know, uh, that every Every uh, preference setting is a uh, a designer that refused to make a decision. <laughs> you, you know, if you look at all those different preferences, it's like, you know, that's a, if a, a good designer, there'll be no settings at all. This is how the software works. I've completely designed it. But yep. if like, I don't know if it should be this or that. So here's a setting for it. Yep. I, for yeah. some reason, and I don't know why, I immediately go to uh, uh, Photoshop, which keeps... Uh, uh, changing the unit of measurement uh, from what I prefer—I I yeah. work in a world of pixels—to inches, yeah. which has no meaning for me, right? Uh, but of course, that's probably Photoshop's bigger target market. But it keeps getting reset every time I get a new update of the product. And so yeah. yes, I understand. And and of course, when I do that little drop down for for there's like five or six other options there that I have no idea what they even are. I mean, I get centimeters, get that, but the others, eh. <laughs> so, so yes, there was somebody who didn't make a decision. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, let's see. So for the Ada yeah. Cool this week, um, oh, oh, we just finished Sweet Tooth. Yeah, I've seen the previews for that. Is it it's, good? It's really good. We enjoy oh, it. Okay, good. Um, the, it, it is, it is post-apocalyptic, uh, but... The apocalypse looks a lot like what we've just lived through in the last 12 to 18 months. In other words, there is a virus, and the virus is significantly more lethal than than COVID-19. But uh, so, you know, there's this threat to humanity, quite literally. But at the same time, uh, coincident with this virus appearing, all of a sudden, um, all the children that are born from that point on are hybrids. By being, you know, some part animal-ish, uh, Sweet Tooth is. Uh, I'm not going to try. I'm trying not to give too much away because there's some really cool reveals along the way. But Sweet Tooth is part deer, and uh, it basically follows his story from his original, um, uh, you know, how he came to be uh, and uh, where he ends up. And it is a. It's an eight episode, one season, with a huge mungus cliffhanger. Uh, so hopefully there will be a season two. And I do believe that they did get signed up for two season two. What I thought was interesting about it is that it actually is produced, uh, by Jeffrey Dean Morgan and his wife. It's basically what they did during the pandemic is what it sounds like. And there's a lot of social commentary as you might expect given the subject matter. So we really enjoyed it. Um, highly recommended sweet tooth. And that was on Netflix. Uh, Yeah. And I want to recommend something. It's also on Netflix. Um, it's called Alice in Borderland, and it's a it's a Japanese show, but it's dubbed into English. Okay, which is something you don't see too often anymore. Um, but I can tell why it's dubbed. It's because um, 
there is a lot of, uh, sometimes a dialogue, there's many people involved in a scene and it's like, you know, when there's a lot of conversation going on, would be like, oh, that would be confusing if it was dubbed. Yes. <laughs> a bunch of people are, are, it's action, right? There's a lot of action. People are like this, that, and the, uh, okay. So, all right, makes sense. So it's dubbed and it, it makes it a little easier to watch too while like doing other things. Um, anyway, it's a neat little show because it's, um, you know, one of those things where it's like everybody's just appeared except some random people in Tokyo and they're all being forced to play these games that are like, you know, either mental or physical challenges. Um, and if they don't win the games, they die. <laughs> so, <laughs> like saw. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's elements of that and like hunger games and um, the maze runner and, you know, all that kind of stuff okay. in there. Uh, but uh, it's kind of, it's kind of neat stuff. And then it, it, it does move fa- like it does. It doesn't, okay just have that one idea and then there's episode after episode it like the show is already i'm only like five episodes in the show's already starting to morph into some other things going on but it's definitely hooked me Mm -hmm. um and if you like those kinds of uh like try the types of shows where you're trying to figure out what is going on there better be a reasonable explanation at the end of this series (laughs) you're going to be pissed (laughs) but i know there's already you know a season two um so this is only season one that's available on netflix and i think i don't know if season two is coming out soon or it came out in japan or, or what but i know it goes beyond this season so um, so yeah. funny, something you said reminded me the whole concept of, of dubbing versus subtitles. Um, I don't know where I saw it, but about three or four weeks ago, I saw, I think it was a promotional video from a company who was using deep fake technology to do dubbing. So what that means is when a character in a movie speaks a dubbed line, their face matches what they're speaking. Oh, which makes it so much more natural, right? I mean, you can actually, it it starts to feel like they actually were speaking this language that they don't know. Um, Yeah. And I I thought that was really, it it raises a whole, you know, slew of questions when it comes to the actors and, and, you know, whose voice and, and, but it's his lips and who's getting paid, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's a whole bunch of content management issues, but I just thought the technology was absolutely fascinating. And the fact is that the next, the next wave of dubbing may not be one of those things where they say three words and their lips keep moving for five seconds more. I don't know if I like that. It feels to me like a solution looking for a problem because it just doesn't seem like that big of a problem to have. You know. I, I tell you, that, so they, they use some example clips. I will try to find it if I can. Um, yeah. They use some example clips and it, to me, it really did feel more natural. It if you, really yeah, did, oh, it I have did. no doubt it does. I mean, but. The, the problem for me is that dubbing, uh, I prefer dubbing. I shouldn't say I prefer dubbing. It depends on what I'm watching on. I I, yeah. I love, for example, um, some of these I mentioned before these Nordic noir um, TV shows that we've yes. been watching, murder mysteries set in Finland and Denmark and that kind of stuff, and I in Iceland. Um, there's a, a some are dubbed, and some are not, but they're subtitled. And in some cases, the subtitled ones feel better because you actually get to hear the inflection yep. and the tone and, and it just feels more natural. Some of the, du- some of the dubbed ones are okay, but to me, if they're dubbing with, with this kind of um, deep fake technology, 
you get this chance of being both. Either way, subtitles or dubbing are going to take you out a little bit of what it is you're watching. Whereas I think that the the you know making it more smooth could enhance. The it could. I, I guess the thing I don't like about uh, you know using a deep fake type technology is I want to have all the choices there. Like I want, uh, and I haven't tried this, but I assume in Netflix that I could choose either to listen to the Japanese audio, listen to the English audio, and with either one of those show subtitles in, in either language or maybe just English. Um, and the, you know, I could have all those choices, but if they deep fake it, then it's probably not going to work anymore. Then it probably needs to just be in English. Because I, don't know. I mean, let's face it, it's you know, each one of those options, um, like a preference, is something that the the producer or whoever produces the movie has to choose to include, right? It's additional work, it's an additional choice for every viewer to make. Uh, there's nothing that says they can't do that and still do the deep fake version, right? They may have the I guess. original the original video. Uh, dubbed the original video in English, the original video with captions, without captions, and oh, by the way, here's a deepfake version in the language of your choice. You know where one one place where the the deepfake version I think does work is in theaters, because you can't, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. everybody's watching the same thing, right? So yeah. I would love to have all the choices available to me at home, yeah. but if I say there was like a big hit movie that was in a, a non English. Uh, you know, a non English language, and it they w- said, oh, we want to have this in the U.S then I'd rather have them take that original big hit movie and deep fake it and put English to it. Mm-hmm. But then you see the original cinematography, yes, the original yes. actors, yep. you know, all of that, then have them go and, um, you know, just have reshoot it, remake it, you know, uh, you know, girl with the dragon tattoo kind of thing oh, or, right. or a point of no return um, versus La Femme Nikita, that kind of yep. uh, situation going on. Yep. But anyway, there's that, that's a, we could do a whole show on that. <laughs> Obviously. So um, this week, I want to point people at something a little different. I, I, I don't remember if I've mentioned this here before. It's my site, seventakeaways.com. Late last year, I decided that I was wasting too much time. I wasn't consuming enough um, valuable or, or significant content, um, content that wasn't just fluff, content that wasn't just social media. Uh, so what I decided to do was to force myself to uh, basically come up with a takeaway every day from something substantial that I've read and write it down. And the way I would force myself is to force myself to make it a newsletter. So I have a deadline every Sunday morning. I have to have these seven takeaways from something significant that I've read over the, in the preceding week. And um, it's actually, it's it's been a lot of fun. It has definitely achieved its goal. I've been reading more, better stuff as a result. And um, I've just been having fun with it. I, I, I publish it not so much for people to read as much for me to publish, but like I said, I'm having so much fun with it. I'm a little kind of sort of a little proud of it that I figured I'd go ahead and mention it. Seventakeaways.com. There's an email form you can sign up for. The back issues are all there. You can see what I'm talking about and maybe have some takeaways of your own. Yep, and I'm a happy subscriber to that. Um, and I just, I'll, I'll, since we talked a lot about the new stuff coming to Mac OS Monterey, um, I'll point everybody to my video where I just talk about just some of the things I found interesting because there was no way at 106 items <laughs> time 15 seconds. That's a half hour video right there. And that's assuming I could do 15 seconds on each one. So yes. uh, I 15 of the things that I found interesting is, cool. is what's in that cool. video. I can go watch that because Monterey will land both on uh, 
on my old Mac Pro, which is still running happily in my basement doing work for me. But of course, it'll land eventually on my wife's Mac, um, a MacBook Air. Yes, and uh, attentive listeners with good memories would remember that I got rid of my 2013 Mac Pro, got a new, very expensive Mac Pro, based on the assumption that when this year's version of Mac OS came out, it would not run on a 2013 Mac Pro. Mm -hmm. That assumption turns out to be false. <laughs> it, it is listed as a supported machine. I didn't have to buy this expensive Mac Pro. I could have waited it out for the... Apple Silicon Mac Pros. An M1 okay. or, an, or an M2 or M3 or whatever they're going to call yeah, it. Yeah. So, someday. you know, and yeah, didn't, didn't, didn't work out for me, but. Oh, oh well. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. As you know by now, the show notes are going to be out at this week uh, at tehpodcast.com slash teh136. If you've got a comment or a question, you know to hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment on that show notes page. Thanks, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it, and we will see you here again next week. Take care. Bye.